Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today, we're joined by our guest storyteller, Carmel Page. Carmel is a storyteller, an illustrator and an author who works here in the city of Sheffield, South Yorkshire, where Lore and Legend is produced. As one of the three-person team currently helming the StoryForge, Sheffield's premier storytelling club, she helps to nurture and promote the traditional storytelling scene in the region. Most of her work, however, is in education and literacy, where she uses her skills to teach storytelling to children and adults in a wide variety of creative settings. Carmel has run more than 50 arts projects in local Sheffield schools, in museums, and is part of Yorkshire Sculpture Park's volunteer arts team. She also works with the children's literacy charity Grimm and Co, and runs art workshops for refugees and a youth club for teenagers. Last year, she published her first book of folk tales with the history press, Yorkshire Folk Tales for Children. Now, with all of that on her plate, we're very lucky that Carmel had the time to join us in the studio, but you'll be glad that she did. Carmel's work is a wonderful example of traditional storytelling applied to life in the modern world. Not only is a storytelling always fresh and engaging, but it also draws directly upon local folklore and makes it relevant to audiences today. This is Carmel telling us the story of the Richmond drummer boy. in her womb. Baby, kicking in her womb. Baby wants his dinner. Baby wants his dinner. Have you noticed how some people just have rhythm? They seem to be born with it. One night, a woman crying out in the first pangs of labour came to Easby Abbey on the edge of Richmond. And by the morning, a little boy had arrived there too. But his life came in exchange for that of the mother. And because nobody knew who the woman was, despite asking everyone in the town of Richmond, she had to be buried in an unmarked grave in the grounds of Easby Abbey. And a local family agreed that they would take in the child and bring him up as their own. Take that rattle off the bin! The husband of the family was not impressed by the noisy little boy. But when they took his toys from him, he was a sweet-tempered boy and he didn't mind. He just sat, swinging his legs against the chair. Take that boy outside! One day, Mrs Threakston, the neighbour, came to see the boy and she brought him a little tin of biscuits and the boy was delighted! He could play with the tin. And that night, the husband said, that boy has to go. Any child who is stupid enough to play with a tin and not eat the biscuits is not going to grow up with my children in my house. And he took that boy next door and he gave him to Mrs Threakston. Who is deaf? And that boy and Mrs. Threakston, they were so happy together. They loved each other. She delighted in the little boy. And the little boy delighted in watching the soldiers who were in barracks at Richmond Castle march down through the town past their house. And whatever rhythm they were marching to, He would play that rhythm on his little biscuit tin for days and days. 
And the soldiers, they all called him the little drummer boy. And he was happy. But then, Mrs. Threakston died. And the little boy went back next door. That night, the husband of that house went to Sap Ale in a different tavern from where he normally went. The tavern where the drum major could be found. And he explained to the drum major that for a certain fee, he could have in his possession a little boy who had a passion for drumming and was not overly fond of food. And so the next day, that little boy joined the army. He was six. And the soldiers were not impressed by this scrawny little boy who was sent to join them. They felt insulted. But that night, at band practice, when they saw the huge grin on his face when he was given his first ever real drum, they did just soften a little bit to him. And they taught him the very first rhythm of drumming. One, two, three and four. One, two, three and four. One, two, three and four. All night that little boy could have played on that drum to his heart's content. But when the band practice was over, the men wanted to have some peace. But having been given a drum for the first time in his life, all he wanted to do was see what the drum was capable of. A young man called Matthew took that little boy away. Before the men got too cross with him, he took him to the quartermaster's store and he fitted him out with his uniform. For the first time in his life, that little boy wore new clothes, smart black trousers. He wore a red jacket with gold braid. He wore a cap with a badge on it. And he wore a huge grin. And Matthew said, Here lad, thou looks as grand as King Arthur and the knights at the round table. Who? The next day, Matthew and the lad were walking along beside the river swale, listening to the gushing of the water, and they saw a big rock where they could sit together and listen to the water and feel the sun on their faces. And Matthew said, Here lad, I'll tell thee a story. Long ago, a few years after King Uther Pendragon had died, his land was in a terrible state. If the shores of England had come under attack, there would have been nobody to defend the realm. Once the king had died with no heir, the bishops were bickering with the lords, the lords were laughing at the earls, the earls were falling out with the knights, the knights were nagging at the lords. But it was decreed that there would be a tournament and everybody hoped that by bringing people together for a grand tournament, the land could be reunited again. Sir Ector had two sons, Kay and Arthur. And this year, Kay was old enough to take place in the tournament, the single combat, a fight with swords between two young men. He had been practising all year. And the father said, Pack your bags, we go to the tournament. And Arthur, you can come too. So that excited family travelled all day to reach the town of the tournament, arriving late at night. They found an inn to stay. And in the morning, the two boys set out to explore the town and prepare themselves for the tournament. As they went into the marketplace, they had never seen such a big throng of people there before. As they got near to the tournament field, they saw acrobats and jugglers, and there in the middle of the tournament field was the ring where the single combat would happen. 
The names were just beginning to be... I forgot my sword! Arthur, run! Get my sword! And Arthur ran as fast as he could. He had to get his brother the sword so he could take place in the combat. Back past the entertainers, back through the marketplace. He got back to the inn when they had stayed. <sighs> the door was shut. running an ale tent out on the tournament field and the inn would not be opened again till that evening and Arthur listened all he could hear was the beating of his heart and he thought I must run back to my brother I must tell him that I cannot find him a sword he ran back through the marketplace as fast as he could he kept running he had to get back to his brother there's a sword there's a sword there is a sword outside the church sticking out of a stone. There is a beautiful sword glinting in the sun as if the Lord God himself has decreed that Kay must have a sword. And Arthur climbed up onto the stone and grabbing the hilt, he pulled the sword from the stone, allowed himself just one quick moment to play, then with the sword under his arm and running as fast as he could, back to his brother, back past the entertainers, and just as Kay's name was called to fight in the tournament, he put the sword into his hand and Kay fought well. The crowd were cheering him on. Arthur elbowed his way through to the front and he watched his brother. He won his first tournament and everybody cheered. Hurrah! And he was called to fight again and he fought his second round and again his movements were beautiful. Every movement was so balanced, so perfect. He had never fought so well. He won his second match. Hurrah! Called the crowd. He was preparing for his third match. But there were nudgings in the audience. There were uncertain looks. And the marshal stepped into the ring. Tell me, where did you get that sword? Now, whilst Kay had been waiting for Arthur, he had heard the conversations of the other young men on the tournament field. They had said that outside the church was a huge stone. And stuck in that stone was a sword. And the sign on the sword said, whoever can pull this sword from the stone is our once and future king. And many young men had already tried. And Kay had decided that once his round had finished, he too would try and pull the sword. And he stood there now in the ring. For the first time, he looked at the sword in his hand. He knew its perfect balance by now. He saw the jewel on the pommel. He saw the beauty of the blade. And he thought, this is the stone. This is the sword from the stone. And that means if I am holding it, I could be the king. And he felt like a king. He had won his first two fights. Why should it not be him who is king? And he looked the marshal in the eye and he said, I got the sword from the stone. Just then, Kay saw somebody else entering the ring. It was his father. And he walked towards him and he said, Kay, did you pull the sword from the stone? And Kay could not look his father in the eye and he hung his head. No, no, I didn't. And his father called to Arthur and Arthur joined them inside that ring and he said, Arthur, did you pull this sword from the stone? And before he could answer, another man entered the ring, an elderly man and their father ran off and threw their arms around him. Merlin, Merlin, I am so glad you are here. And then Arthur and Kay were taken out of that ring into the privacy of a striped tent on the tournament field. And Merlin said, Arthur, you took the sword from the stone, didn't you? Yes, sir. And then Merlin explained that Arthur was not who he thought he was. He 
was the son of King Uther Pendragon. And for many years of his life, he had been the King of England, but he had not known. Merlin explained that he was born in a cave on the beach at Tintagel, and his mother could not care for him because she was not married to Arthur's father. And Arthur's father, King Uther Pendragon, had many enemies, and he could not care for him. So Merlin had come in a boat. And the moment that child was born, he had wrapped him in a blanket and taken him away by sea. And he had found a family who would love him and care for him and bring them up as if he was their own. But he was not. The next thing that Arthur remembered, he was being marched by his father and by Merlin back to the yard outside the church where the great stone was. And Kay passed him the sword and he was lifted up onto that stone. And Merlin said, put the sword back into the stone. And there was no hole in the stone for the sword. And Arthur looked up all around him. Hundreds of people were gathered. But he held out that sword and he pushed it into the stone and it slid in. And then he was told, pulled the sword out of the stone. And with one big, easy sweep, he pulled that sword from the stone and held it above his head. And the people shouted, Hail the King! Hail the King! Hail the King! The clock in Richmond chimed. And Matthew said, Hey, come on, lad. Time for band practice. We guess best get back. But what happened to Arthur? Did he become the king? Another day, lad. I'll tell you another day. It was time to learn a new rhythm. One and two, three and four. That little boy, once the drum was out of the cupboard, he just wanted to play all night on his drum. And Matthew would have to find ways to distract him, other things to do to keep him occupied, or he would drive the other soldiers mad with his passion for drumming. Sometimes they sent him off on little jobs just to get him away from those drums. And other times, Matthew would tell him stories in their favourite spot on that big stone by the River Swale. So Arthur became the king. Merlin advised him that he must go straight away to Tintagel. He must hold a feast. He must invite all the knights of the realm to come and join him. And then Merlin disappeared. And Arthur felt so young, so foolish. He did as instructed and he sat on a huge throne in a banqueting hall. Long lines of tables spread out before him up and down the hall and the knights started to arrive. And as they did, they squabbled amongst themselves about who should sit at the top by Arthur and the grand fire and who should sit at the bottom by the draught from the door. And that little boy sat in his throne and he thought, how can I be a king? How can I rule a country when I cannot even stop my own knights from squabbling over where to sit for dinner? If only we just had one big round table that everyone could sit at together and every place be equal. And he suddenly saw there at his side was Merlin. You've just had a very good idea. What idea? And suddenly, in a puff of smoke, there 
In that room was one vast round table and everyone took a seat and everyone felt equal. And the knights stopped their squabbling and they acknowledged that Arthur, though small and young, was indeed a very, very good king who treated them all the same, a king who was fair. And there and then they all pledged their allegiance to Arthur. And the boy asked, are there more stories? Will you tell me more stories? And over time, Matthew told him all the stories of Arthur and his knights, of Gawain and the Green Knight, of Lancelot and Guinevere. And the little boy asked Matthew, can anybody be a knight? And he said, no, you can only be one of Arthur's knights of the round table if you are very brave, and if, whenever asked to help, you always help. And even then, you can only be one of Arthur's knights if he invites you. So are there still knights now? Well, some people don't think so, but some people say that Arthur and his knights are still here. They are in a big cavern underneath Richmond Castle and they are asleep. And if ever the shores of this realm come under attack, they will rise up again and defend us. One day, the soldiers of Richmond Castle were asked to build out the footings of a new building. They toiled away up inside the castle walls but before long they hit solid rock and could dig no further. But there in the rock was a hole and calling down into it they heard an echo and they felt that it was probably a tunnel going somewhere. Hey, I have heard that there is a tunnel from here. It goes all the way to Easby Abbey. Hey lad, I've heard that too. Oh, wish we could get down and explore. And the little boy, seeing that they were looking at something on the ground, he came along and looked down the hole with them and they said, Hey lad, that's fit down that hole. Would thou like to go and see where it goes? We think it goes to Easby Abbey. <gasps> to Easby Abbey? You think it goes underground to Easby Abbey? That's where my mother is. And he agreed that he would go and explore underground and see where the tunnel went. Hey, but we'll not know which way he's going. I could take my drum. I could beat my drum as I walk. And you'll be able to hear me above ground. Yeah, that's a good idea. So the little lad was lowered down into the tunnel and he started to walk, beating his drum. echo and he could tell which way the passage went. Above ground all they could hear was a dull thud, thud, thud. Hey, it's not going to Abbey, it is going the way. Hey, it's this way. Follow through gate. Come round, I can hear, I can hear. He's going across market. That's not to Abbey. No, he's turned. He's turned. Oh, here. He's going by a river. Oi, his way to Abbey. Tis true then. Ah, he stopped. Why is he stopped? Listen. Well, maybe he's got as far as he can go. Listen. Oh, maybe he's just scratching his nose. Give the lad a moment. Listen. Maybe he's having a piss. That has to let a lad have a piss. Listen. Some of the men got down with their ear to the ground. Some of them shuffled about. Listen. 
Maybe, maybe it's got to end and he's gone back. We'll go and see if he comes out at home. Listen! But, despite all their listening, they never heard the drumbeat. Again. And they never saw that little boy again. Some of them went back to help him come out of the hole, but he did not come out. And some of them stayed at the place where he had gone quiet. But quiet he remained. And Matthew would not leave at the end of the day. Some of them said, come on, we must go back. But he just stayed in that spot by the river where the little boy had gone quiet. And nobody could get in at the other end for the entrance was too small. And they stood, shaking their heads and tears rolling down the faces of some of them. And Matthew stayed all night by the river, hoping to hear that drumbeat again. And for days he sat by the river. They bought him food, but he would not eat. He stayed there and he sobbed. After a few days, he got the other soldiers to help him move the huge stone that they used to sit on to tell stories to exactly the spot where the drumbeat had gone silent. And he sat there. And he thought about that little boy he'd loved so much. He thought, and he thought, and he thought... And he realised what had happened to his little friend. He had set off down the tunnel, listening to the sound of his drumbeat, hearing its echo. He had sensed answering a bigger... a drum and King Arthur said then you are a very brave little boy and you are also willing to help whenever your friends ask and I hear that you are polite too it is dark underground and you cannot see but if you went into that cavern and you listened, you would hear the sound of many men fast asleep, but breathing. It is dark underground and you cannot see. But if you could, you would see a vast cavern full of beds. And on each bed... A man lies deep asleep, and the very central bed is bigger and grander than any of the other beds. And on that bed lies King Arthur, fast asleep. And at the side of King Arthur, there is a drum and drumsticks. And in the cushion of King Arthur's arms, his youngest knight is sleeping. The Richmond Drummer Boy was a story that Carmel developed for her book, Yorkshire Folk Tales for Children. In this interview, we'll hear more about how this story came about. To start though, I asked Carmel to tell us how storytelling came to lie at the heart of her work as an artist and an educator. So 
I actually started, when I left school, I trained in childcare and I worked with children for 10 years. And then when I had my own family, I retrained in the arts. Because I'd worked with children, I was able to do visual art projects in schools. And um, I had a lot of contracts doing that, but a lot of the funding was for literacy projects. So I kind of then moved sideways into storytelling. And when I started storytelling, I just thought, oh, this is my thing. <laughs> how how has sort of oral storytelling sort of fitted into, into that kind of area? Because it's not quite the same thing as literacy and, and oral storytelling. No, but what's been realised in education is that before a child can write a story, they have to be able to tell a story. So there's actually been a big focus on getting children to create and to tell stories. So I actually got to do amazing things like dressing up as a superhero called Creative Carmel. And when I first arrived in the classroom, I actually used to fly around the classroom with my sequin cape flinging out behind me before I did any work. And I'd get the children to dress up and be superheroes. And we would actually have adventures together and play the adventures. And as the children were creating stories, I would photograph them. And then I would produce photograph books. And then they were able to tell the story of their adventure from the book. And I could then scribe the story as well. But that very starting point of literacy, of oracy, is actually play. And realising how play links to story. Mm. Are there particular kinds of stories that you find work well with kids? Um, funny ones. Ones with farts and poo <laughs> always work well. Um, I think what I tend to do, though, is go from where the children are. So quite often they'll have a, a theme that they're working on at the time in school so you try and find what their interest is in that theme and actually let the children um, build their own stories. But at the same time as that, telling them more sophisticated stories that help them to understand story structures and introduce them to a sort of wider genre of stories. What kind of age ranges do you work with? All ages, actually. I've done quite a bit of work with parents, with toddlers, encouraging parents to tell their own stories to toddlers. Um, but I've also worked with sort of primary school and youth clubs. And, and adults too, actually. I've done quite a lot of work storytelling to adults and helping adults to but find ways to tell their stories. So I've worked with businesses, helping people who run small businesses to think about how they tell the story of their business. Then where did your passion for, for storytelling come from, do you think? I've just always had a head that actually thinks in stories. And when I do something or when something happens to me, I've always thought about how I would explain it to somebody else. So the way I process ideas is to think about them as stories. And I've always done that. I think for, for, for all sorts of complex reasons, although my parents were very good at the practical things of um, food and trips out and laundry and having a roof over their head, they didn't understand that I kind of had an inner life of my own. I think they just saw child rearing as being about doing the practical things for children. So I think I always sort of escaped into my own head as a child um, and lived in a place of my own. And I still do. What's the what's the, what's your favourite place that you've kind of told story stories in? Oh, my next tree neighbour is Stoneface. His real name is Andrew Vickers, but he's known as Stoneface. And he owns a sculpture park uh, in the Loxley Valley in Sheffield, where I live. 
and uh, some days he opens it up to the public and it is full of his stone carved sculptures and trees. It's a beautiful, a really enchanting setting. But then when you add in all these sculptures and he's created a fireplace with um, a circle of benches which actually have people carved into the stone sort of peeping out of you and to tell stories there around the fireplace is absolutely magic especially in the winter when it's dark the fire's lit there's fairy lights you look up through the branches and you see the moon and the stars just love it yeah it's great isn't it um we 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 both did some storytelling there together and that was magic wasn't it yeah that was really magic Well, so there's some great. There are some great places for telling stories in Yorkshire. Um, the other one that I've seen, you do, do you work with? Is it Grim and Co? Yes, Grim and Co is an apothecary to the magical. It's also a literacy project. But the main thing you need to know is that they have a shop in Rotherham where you can buy spiders' legs, broomsticks, ingredients for potions, spell books. They have a magicometer. Um, I actually stood on it yesterday and it told me that I'm a goblin. <laughs> um, it is a very, very special place. Um, as you walk into the shop, you see all these things for sale, like sunshine and grandma scabs. And immediately the children start reading the labels because all of the products just have really funny labels. And there's also a bureau where you can sit and write stories to any magical creature and you get a reply, which is a fabulous service. Um, Sometimes I go there and tell stories in the library of forgotten books. And that's a very special place because when the children go in, they're just so in awe of the whole set that they're really kind of ready for a magical story. And once they've had a story, they can choose any books they want from that library and they can take them away and keep them. Wow. Yeah, it does sound magical. Um, Oh, it's very magical. I have to go and visit sometime. You must. (laughs) Because, you know, you can buy middle-aged vitriol and (laughs) that's what I've got on the side of my bath. I've got middle-aged vitriol, but... Right. So much fun. And most of the money goes to the literacy projects. They just, um, they want to expand. And there's a Gothic church just two streets away that's gone up for sale. Mm. And they're hoping to find this Gothic church. And that would be fabulous if they get in there. Sure. Yeah. It would be a big move. When did you start going to the Story Forge? The kind of like the world of storytelling, you know, the festivals and the clubs and that kind of thing. Were you aware of that before? Um, or is that something that you discovered later? Or It was about eight years ago, I think, when I first started telling stories to children. And I just wondered if there were other storytellers in Sheffield. I wasn't really aware of it as a sort of job. So I just started searching online and discovered that Sheffield had a storytelling club for grown-ups called Story Forge in a pub. And I thought, hmm, that, that sounds quite interesting. So I went along on the first night and had a very warm welcome, told a story, listened to a lot of stories. And really that club was my university because... When I was telling stories, I had this fabulous audience who were really kind, really appreciative, but I could look at them and I could see just by looking at them what worked and what didn't. And I also got to listen to a lot of very professional storytellers and a lot of very amateur storytellers. And although I knew some were good and some were not so good, I tried to work out what the difference was and what the good ones were doing. And it's funny because it can be really hard to actually put your finger on what it is that a good storyteller does. But just having the opportunity to go once a month and tell and listen was just amazing. And then when Tim Ralph said that 
um, he was going to stop running the club. He'd actually moved out of Sheffield. Um, he asked if anyone could do any of the jobs, you know, if anyone could help. And I said, I could get there early to put the chairs out and I could count the money afterwards. And that was all I offered to do. But somehow I'm I'm now one of the currently uh, two people running the club with Helen Francis. But uh, Beth Gwyver will be back with us again soon. It's a good question, isn't it? You know, what what is the difference? You know, what what are the things that make for really great storytelling? Have you... Is there anything that you've really picked up on or that, that you took away and tried to put into your storytelling? I, I could see quite early on that some people stood up and they thought it was all about them. And I thought, that's where they're going wrong. It is not about them. It's about the story. So I just tried to really focus on what that story needed in order to kind of travel across the room. And then I thought... Actually, it's not about the story. It's about the audience. And it's about how I relate to that audience. It's about how I get that story to go on that journey from from my head and my heart to their heads and their hearts. And now I've come back to thinking, actually, it's not about the audience. It's about me. It's, It's about what I do. It's about how I stand there, how I look at them and how I express the plot in my head and the emotions in my heart. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's almost like, almost that cycle of communication. Yeah, I feel there, like I've come full circle with it, actually. <laughs> and I'm back to where I began and in a completely different place. Have you found sort of running the Storyforge? And has that, has that brought you any new perspectives? Or? Oh, hugely. The, the most fun is the open mic night. Because we do this completely crazy thing that we advertise that we've got a night of storytelling and actually we haven't. All we've got is a room. We haven't even got a mic. And you go and you just hope that somebody turns up who's got a story to tell. So I always have one myself. I can always rely on uh, Helen or Beth if she's there to have a story. That is not a full night of storytelling. So it is... You have to be a risk taker to run an open mic night. But I just love the magic of people coming in. Um, Some of them are desperate to tell. Some of them need a bit of a nudge to tell. But what I found is if a lot of people come, enough of them will have stories to fill the night. If not very many people turn up, then actually you get new tellers. Because people who like the idea of doing it but are not very confident, if there's not many there, it just gives them that little bit of confidence to tell their first story. And I love I love the equality of it. So we don't have auditions. We do ask people to stick to 10 minutes, but anybody can stand up and tell a story. And I just really like that we give people a platform. We give people a voice. Mm. I think that's really important. I can't remember when I first start, started coming to Storyforge, but I remember seeing your performances there. Uh, the thing that I really enjoyed about them was kind of like the the liveliness and the energy and, um, and I think the creativity as well because there are lots of different kinds of storytellers. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a big focus on traditional stories uh, in storytelling clubs. Uh, but because of the work that you do with kids, you know, your stories were always pretty creative, you know. The, um, I think the first ones that I remember seeing you do were the uh, Flapjack Dinosaur. Flapjackosaurus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Recipe Rex. Recipe Rex. Um, and uh, Descartes Tarts. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they were just they were great because they were really inventive you know they had uh, lots of familiar elements but it was always like a fresh new story and it was you know that in, in a way that's um, you know people think talk about oh you know transmitting the storytelling tradition so like real storytelling in you know inverted commas is like you know retelling these old stories uh, but you know what you do I think of as like a very true form of storytelling like like you say where it's about your audience and you're obviously looking to how 
you can create stories that appeal to that. But, Thank um, you. Well, Flapjack is sore as happened because I was working with a group of families and I asked them next week, what would you like stories about? It was a storytelling project encouraging them to tell stories with their children. And they said, our kids love dinosaurs. Can we have a story about dinosaurs? Now, my colleague, when I wasn't there, asked them what they wanted the following week. And they said, can we make Flapjack? And I said to her afterwards, we can't make Flapjack because I promised a story about dinosaurs. There is no dinosaur story about Flapjack. And my colleague said, come hell, you can write one. And I went, oh, I suppose there could be a character called Flapjackosaurus. And the whole story just came from there. Isn't there a story in your uh, Yorkshire Tales for Kids about a dragon and... Is it? It's not Flapjack, is it? No, is it's it Parkin. Parkin. It's Parkin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I was asked to write Yorkshire Folk Tales for Children by the History Press. So in Filey Bay, you have Filey Brig, and there's quite a lot of different folklore about Filey Brig. But the one that I liked most was that a dragon crash-landed in the sea, having choked on Yorkshire parking. Just so much fun. <laughs> uh, and I decided to call the dragon Brig. It wasn't in the original version, but obviously, as it became, the fossilised body became Filey Brig. And then it meant at the end of the story, I could include a recipe for parking, which does actually stick in your throat. It does stick your teeth together. So it was a completely believable story, which I'm sure really happened. <laughs> I was incredibly fortunate in what happened with that book because uh, Beth Gwyther had been asked if she would write the book and she was very excited about it. But when she came to do it, she found that although she loves telling stories to children, she didn't really get the same pleasure from writing them. So she said, shall I tell the History Press you'll do it? Which I was absolutely thrilled about. I mean, nobody ever has a publisher get in touch and say, will you write a book unless you're a celebrity? But it actually happened. Now, Beth had already bought a big bag of books of Yorkshire folklore. So not only did she hand me the contract, she gave me a bag of books. So I spent a lot of time reading through Yorkshire folklore and doing my own research online and looking for other books. And I remember one little book, I think it was called The Little Book of Yorkshire. There was a page about Richmond and it told the story of the Richmond drummer boy. And it said that the soldiers who had been in the barracks had found a hole in the ground and there was a legend of a tunnel going to Easby. So because they couldn't fit down themselves, they asked the little boy to go down and to beat a drum so that they could hear above ground where he went. And they followed him for a mile, and then the drumbeat stopped. That was it. That was the story. Um, I thought, well, that is not a suitable story to tell to children. And it was too short, anyway. But somehow, that little boy just touched my heart. And, you know, I turned the page in the book to find out what happened next. And it just went on to the legend of Potter Thompson. But who was Potter Thompson? He was just this man who found a hole in the hill underneath the castle. Right. And he went and explored and um, I think he found Excalibur and he picked it up and then voices shouted at him and then he ran away because he was scared. But then I think he was told if you'd taken the sword, you would have been the richest man in England or something. So right. he went back to try and find it and he could never find it again. Mm. It's a fairly classic kind of tunnel yeah. under a hill, sleeping Arthur. Yes. Of... Well, we've um, we've just just done the series with the story of Thomas the Rhymer, and the same story is told about. I think it's a um, uh, a horse seller or merchant who goes under the hill at Ireland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he meets uh, not one of Arthur's knights or, or Merlin, but. He meets Thomas the Rhymer, yeah. who then shows him the so sleeping it's a very um, typical sort of bit of folklore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It sh shows up uh, everywhere. Um, it's one of those things when you're 
looking at the local legends of local areas, it's like King Arthur and his knights do seem to be sleeping under every hill from the top to the bottom of Britain. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how um, many places claiming that there's a lot aren't there. <laughs> but that was a different story. And I was just thinking this is, you know, neither of them have much substance to them. But somehow that little boy didn't go away. And I was busy writing other stories for the book. And I kept thinking... Why didn't they just dig a hole where he went quiet? And I thought, it's because he didn't have a mum. That's why. If he'd had parents, they would have dug him out. And I just kept thinking, what might have happened in that tunnel? And then I realised that I could join those two stories together. And there was the possibility of an end then that was much more open and had a lot more options to it. And children and adults could read into that story and how it ended, whatever they felt comfortable with. Yeah, no, it's it's nice in a way, isn't it? It's sort of a, sort of almost a memorial and folklore at the same time. You know, maybe that's part of the storyteller's job, you know, to, um, to take memory and cultural memory and community memory and, you know, turn it into something that has a kind of, like, timeless quality to it, I suppose. Yeah, there is a memorial to him. So to this day, the footpath beside the River Swale that goes to Easby is known as the Drummer Boy Walk. Mm. And there is a big stone there with a plaque on it marking the place where his drum was last heard. So he is still remembered in Richmond, but it occurred to me that normally if a soldier dies in active service, you have a minute silence for them. And when I tell that story with an audience, I actually hold a minute silence. I don't say we're going to have a minute silence, but I actually make that audience listen for a whole minute before I tell them what happens. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty powerful moment how, how do people respond to it? in, in silence they, they do just I tell them to listen and you can really sense that they're listening and you can sense that everybody wants that little boy to reappear so I go into three different poses during that minute and then I just walk up to the front and shake my head and it is a very powerful minute. Did you want to talk about, uh, so, you know, there's this question about um, adapting folklore for kids and whether the stories are the right stories to for, for a kid's book and that kind of thing. And you mentioned uh, one story in particular, uh, jo- Jocunda. Jolly Jocunda. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, one of the stories I found from York is Father Jucundus. And it's basically about a man who, through getting drunk and good luck, rises up um, to become the abbot. And I thought it was a really funny story. But as I was researching for the book, all of the best stories seem to be about boys and men. And I, I felt uneasy about filling a book full of stories about boys and men when we know that half the world is made up of girls and women. And I actually got in touch with my editor and I said, you know, I'm really struggling to find stories about girls that are really positive and where they're really active. How would you feel if I changed the gender of some of the characters in the stories? And she was really positive about it. She thought it was a really good idea, but she said, I must explain that I've done it. So my version of Father Jucundus is called Jolly Jucunda. And I have a young girl who loves to run away at night to pubs, drink and sing and dance. And on her way home one night, she collapses on the doorstep of the abbey And the next morning, the nuns just presume that she's come to join them as a nun. And she gets into all sorts of trouble because she sneaks off and gets drunk. 
and she um, elevates her position in life through getting drunk and singing and dancing. So it's a lot of fun. But I ex- I explain at the end that I have swapped it from uh, a original story about a man. Uh, what's been interesting is some people felt it was inappropriate to have a story in a children's book about a character who gets drunk. So I have been criticised. I have an Amazon review that criticises me quite heavily for that. And it's interesting because I also have a review from a whole class of Wi-Fi children who all wrote their opinion and put it on Amazon. And Jolly Jocunda was their (laughs) favourite. And quite a few children who have read the book, particularly girls, Jolly Jocunda is the favourite. And with the mothers, Jolly Jocunda is the favourite. So the way I think about it is that we need to talk to children about a lot of things and folk tables enable us to do that. They open up a lot of conversations and one of them we need to talk about is alcohol and getting drunk and what impact that might have on your life. And I think all these stories help. I mean, the story of the drummer boy is actually a story of a all in child abuse Mm. and it's a story of child labour and I think all those issues once a child has read that story you can start to talk to them about and you can find out what the child is thinking and help them to explore their own response to it and I think that's how folk tales have always worked and they always will. Yeah that's really it's really interesting to hear what other people's reactions were and, and such a positive reaction as well. Because I think that, uh, you know, if you ask me, then I would be happy to tell, if I had kids, that tale. And for the reasons that you say, you know, and, uh, you know, not condescending to kids, but, you know, engaging with them about all the, the different things in the world. But I'm not sure that if I was writing a book, uh, I would have had the courage to put a tale like that into a kid's book because I think I would have uh, sort of obeyed the societal expectation that you don't put a story about getting drunk uh, into a kid's book Uh, but I think it's great that you have Um, (laughs) uh, people listening to the show will will be able to decide if if that's something they want to buy for their kids (laughs) or just to have on their bookshelf if you're interested in uh, some South, uh, is it is it all of Yorkshire or just South Yorkshire? It's Yorkshire folk tales for children. Yorkshire so folk tales. So it covers all of Yorkshire. Um, officially, the age range is seven to eleven. I know some slightly younger children have had some of the stories read, and a lot of adults have said they've enjoyed them too. And these are all stories that you... Have you generally performed these? Uh, have you performed all of them? Or? Not all, most of them. Most I performed Breed the Dragon is, is very popular because that's very dramatic. Um, the Henpecked Husband is a good giggle. I've often <laughs> done that one. I don't think I've heard that one yet. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's a, a Robin Hood story, Robin of Loxley and the Pancake Surprise. And... Um, yeah, The Silent Drummer Boy is very popular and that's one I've quite often done with adults. Mm. Cool, that's from the History Press. Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll include a, a link um, either oh, to, the, to the book on Amazon or yeah. have you got a website? Not really, Amazon's the best one. Yeah, okay. You've been listening to The Richmond Drummer Boy, a bonus episode of Lore and Legend with our guest storyteller, Carmel Page. Our very special thanks to Carmel for sharing her work with us. We hope that you enjoyed listening to Carmel as much as we did talking to her. If you enjoyed hearing the tale of Arthur and the sword in the stone today, then be sure to stay tuned to this podcast feed because in a few weeks' time we'll be releasing the Lore and Legend Christmas specials, coming to you straight from the Christmas Court of Camelot, and hosted by King Arthur himself. The theme music in this episode was performed by Rob Bentall, with additional sound effects from freesound.org. 
To find out more about episodes of Lore and Legend, you can visit www.loreandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts and audio credits. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing, you can find the links there to support us regularly on Patreon or offer a one-time donation via PayPal. Thanks again for listening, Story Folk, and we hope that you have a wonderful and stress-free festive season this year.